I want to read you this morning from the Word of God from Isaiah 53. If you've got your Bibles with you, you might like to follow along, otherwise you can follow along on the screen behind me. Actually, going to read the uh, the whole of the chapter this morning, right through to verse twelve. Although there are only three verses really that we're going to be focusing on, verses four through to six. This is the word of the Lord. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word to us this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God, we... um,
We come before you and we want to bow before you this morning because you alone are God. You are exalted above all things. There is no God but you. You are robed in majesty and splendour and glory. You are perfect and holy and glorious. How could a God so majestic and magnificent and holy and righteous and pure ever have anything to do with fallen, broken, sinful humanity? And yet your love is so great for us that you reached out to us in our need in order to redeem us for yourself, in order to bring us back into fellowship with you, even though... As the words from Isaiah points out, we had gone astray. We turned away from you and gone our own way. And yet, that did not deter you. You chose instead to come and give your life as a ransom for ours. And this morning we reflect upon that. And we pray in our time together this morning around your word and around the communion table that you will indeed remind us afresh of all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. That you would remind us afresh this morning that although our sins may be many, the sacrifice of Jesus has paid for them all. Your grace abounds. Where, where sin abounded, your grace abounds more. And so we pray this morning that, uh, Lord, you might speak to our hearts in a way that only you can and touch our hearts in a way that only you can. We ask it for your glory. Amen. This morning our eyes and our hearts focus on a cross on a cross. A cross that we often see dangling around the necks of people in a form of jewellery. A cross that we see emblazoned in all kinds of different places in society around us. We've sung about the fact this morning it's a wonderful cross. But it's a sight that should horrify us. The sheer cruelty and brutality of what took place on that cross. The immense suffering of a man, his blood poured out in the midst of people who mocked him, who jeered him, who made a, made a fool of him. There on that cross, as Jesus hung there, there was an eerie darkness that descended for, for, for six hours, sorry, for three hours, from midday through to three in the afternoon. That darkness was symbolic of the darkness of sin that envelops our world, 
and us. It's a, it's a scene that should horrify us. For many who witnessed Jesus' arrest, his trial, his flogging, and his crucifixion, for those who witnessed, they were stunned. So many had put their hope and trust in him. He was meant to be God's Messiah his promised king and his promised deliverer. It was he who was meant to be the victorious one. He was meant to defeat his enemies, not for him to be destroyed by them. It's a scene of horror, but it's also a scene in many people's eyes that just didn't make sense. Even today, the crucifixion of Jesus doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Some say that Jesus died because he was a threat to the Jewish religious establishment of his day. Some say he died because he needed to make a big enough statement so people would actually take notice of him. Some say he died the death of a martyr to inspire his followers. The question we all need to ask ourselves this morning is this. Why did Jesus die? Why did he die? And there's no better passage in all of Scripture to answer this question than here in this passage of Isaiah 53. Charles Spurgeon, that well-known English preacher and pastor, calls this chapter the gospel in miniature. He said it's been referred to as the Everest of the Old Testament In fact, some Old Testament commentators have said that it's as if Isaiah himself had a front row seat and was writing this passage of scripture from right beneath the cross there on Golgotha as he personally witnessed the suffering and death of Jesus. So what do these verses teach us about Jesus' death? Well, let's first make clear that it is Jesus that these verses are referring to, even though this passage was written, these these words, this book was written some 700 years before Jesus even entered into our world. The reason why we believe these verses are written about Jesus is because because the New Testament writers themselves quote much of this passage and apply it directly to Jesus himself. The, the best example of this is Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 35. There, at that particular point in time, we're told there was an Ethiopian government official who had been in Jerusalem for the, celebrating the Passover and had, and had heard about the events of Jesus' death. And he was travelling back to his home in Ethiopia. And there on that particular road, God called one of his apostles, the Apostle Philip, to come and actually uh, draw alongside his chariot. And as Philip drew alongside his chariot, he could hear that the, uh, the government official was reading from this, this exact prophecy here in Isaiah 53. And Philip says to the, to the government official, he says, Do you know what you're reading? And the official said, how can I unless someone explains it to me? 
And he invited Philip up onto his chariot and there Philip actually explained to him how Isaiah 53 actually spoke of the death of Jesus. It pointed to the fact that Jesus was this suffering servant here in Isaiah. In fact, seven out of the 12 verses of this particular chapter are quoted extensively in the New Testament. The New Testament writers consistently go back to this chapter to speak about Jesus and his death and what it meant. This morning, as I said, we're going to just focus on three verses very, very briefly, verses four through to six. Because the overwhelming testimony of these verses, these three verses here in Isaiah is this. That Jesus' death was for us and it was also because of us. If you look again at those verses, look, just concentrate on the, the he or him and the us and our contrasts throughout these verses. Let me read it again. It says, surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was his chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. And on him was laid the iniquity of us all. Jesus' death was for us, but also it was because of us. Look at what Isaiah states in verse 4. He says that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That word born means to lift up and carry away a heavy load. The Hebrew word, the original language, actually means to take the debt of sin upon oneself and carry it as if it was one's own sin. It's used in speaking of one bearing the punishment of sin, but one who is not themselves the guilty party. It's a word used back in Leviticus chapter 16 of the, in, uh, the, the, uh, the passage there that speaks about the Jewish Day of Atonement, that day where the high priest would go in just once per year into the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle and make atonement for the sins of all the people. He would make a sacrifice that would, would turn away God's anger from them. And the priest would have to, first of all, sacrifice a a bull for his own sin and the sin of his family so that he could enter into the Holy of Holies. And then he would take two goats and he would cast lots. And the lot that that fell on the goat to, uh, to be killed, that goat was taken away and sacrificed. But then the, uh, the other goat was then taken and the priest would, would, would symbolically lay his hands on the head of that goat and he would confess the sins of the people on that goat, symbolically transferring the sins to the people. And then that goat was then taken out into the wilderness and released. It carried away the sins of the people, so to speak, but only after the sacrifice had been made of the other goat. This goat, as I said, was taken by the priest 
and symbolically removed the sins of the people. We see a New Testament expression of this idea in John the Baptist's reference to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John 1.29, John is there baptizing at the River Jordan and he says to his disciples as he sees Jesus come into view, as he comes, as Jesus you know, comes towards the river there, John points his disciples to Jesus and says, Behold, look, Gaze upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to lift the heavy burden of sadness and shame and guilt brought about by our sin. But not only that, he came to remove the debt before God, our debt before God because of our sin. Because Jesus knows that it is our sin that alienates us from God and which results in us coming under his judgment and his wrath. And so here we see that uh, the fact that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that Jesus is the only one who can bear that on our behalf. There is no other one who can do that. This emphasis on Jesus bearing the burden and punishment of our sins becomes more apparent in verse 5, whereas here we are told that it says, He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That term pierced refers to the fact that Jesus not only had a spear thrust into his side to see if he was dead, but that he, in fact, was nailed to the cross. His hands and his feet were pierced. Psalm 22, 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Very much pointing to this death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He has been pierced and crushed. Those terms describe extreme distress resulting in his death. In fact, the Hebrew words there behind these terms are the strongest ones in that language for a violent and excruciating death. The reason he was pierced and crushed was because of our transgressions and our iniquities, we are told. Both of these terms relate to our rebellion towards God. That word transgressions refers to a, a crossing of a boundary. It's a, it's a refusal to adhere to God's authority and to deliberately break his law. It's like God saying, you know, putting, a, putting up a fence and saying, these are, the, these are the boundaries and you're free to, you know, to live in that. And that is the safe and the best environment for you to flourish in your lives, within these boundaries, but it is us deciding to take you know, our own lives into our own hands and to cross those boundaries which God has put there in, in place for our good and for our protection. But it is also, a, those boundaries are there to symbolise God's authority over us as his creatures and we reject that authority and cross them anyway. To say, no, God, we will not obey you, but we will, obey, we will obey ourselves. Those transgressions can often be 
one of those things which we do, just even a spur of the moment thing, but iniquity, which, which the, uh, the writer also mentions here, iniquity has to do with a premeditated choice to rebel against God and to refuse to submit to him and to his ways. It's more to do with this heart attitude rather than just our actions. It speaks of an inner corruption within us. And we are told he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The suffering and death that Jesus experienced was all on account of our rebellion towards God and his ways, of refusing to obey his laws and instead seeking to follow our own ways. And yet because of his chastisement, that discipline, that that punishing, we are told that it resulted in our peace. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. That word peace is the Hebrew word there, shalom, meaning a wholeness and a restoration. See, Jesus' punishment, which he bore for us on the cross, has secured for us an everlasting peace with God, that we no longer need fear his wrath for our sin. Do we have assurance that our sins are forgiven and that we are ourselves in his safekeeping to know that our eternal future is secure with him? As Paul puts it in Romans 5 verses 1 to 2, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And so we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul makes clear there that that peace that we have with God that enables us to stand before him with an assurance and with a hope and with a confidence comes only through the fact that Jesus himself has borne our sin on the cross. The result of Jesus' sacrifice is that our relationship with God has changed from one of hostility and antagonism and animosity instead to one of friendship and acceptance and embrace. This is the supreme demonstration of Jesus' infinite love for us, willing to take that just and right punishment of God for sins not his own, in order that we might be reconciled to God and enjoy the fullness of his abundant blessings. That's amazing love, isn't it? That's amazing love. As one commentator said, our God is the only God who has wounds. Our God is the only God who has wounds. Wounds received on our behalf because he loved us so much. That word wounds is picked up there in verse 5 where it speaks about the wounds of Jesus, that those wounds which refer to the incredible beating that his body took there in in not only on the cross but even prior to the cross through the the flogging that he received from from the Roman soldiers. The King James Version renders that word wounds, stripes, and in that famous phrase, by his stripes we are healed. That word wounds can actually refer to the the welts and the, the torn flesh that actually result from that scourging 
the stripes across the back of Jesus. By his stripes we are healed. Healing meaning that we, are, we have been cured. We have been restored to that which was of original condition to our original wholeness in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is that removing of sin. There is that, that bringing back to that beautiful place of, of, of wholeness and goodness and completeness. Again, Charles Spurgeon, speaking of this, says this. He says, will you notice that fact, the fact that it is by Jesus' stripes that we are healed? Will you notice that fact? He says, the healing of a sinner does not lie in himself, nor in what he is, nor in what he feels, nor in what he does, nor in what he vows, and nor in what he promises. No. No. It is in his, it is in Jesus' stripes that the healing lies. Spurgeon says to his congregation, I beseech thee therefore, do not scourge thyself. How often do we sit there and scourge ourselves because of our sin when it is by the stripes of Jesus that we are healed and not by any other way? Only through him can we receive that hope and that confidence and that assurance that our sins have been completely dealt with and that our our shame and our guilt has been completely removed. In verse 6, the emphasis moves away from what the suffering servant of the Lord, that is Jesus, has done to what we have done, where it says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. This is why Jesus had to die. He had to die to rescue us from ourselves. Because we are all like wandering sheep. We have removed ourselves from the oversight and care of the good shepherd, Jesus and the fathers, choosing instead to follow our own desires and passions. That phrase, each of us, signifies that this has been a personal choice that we have made and that we have personal responsibility for our wayward wanderings. Yes, each of us may refer to the crowd, but we are all individually responsible for the choices we have made. We deliberately choose the path of sin. That term, his own way, is the opposite of God's desired way. And therein lies the essence of sin, that we have chosen our own way instead of God. But although it was our choice to rebel against God and his ways, he chose the course of action by which we could be restored. It says he laid our iniquities on him, that is Jesus. And so we see the provision of God's servant, his suffering servant as our substitute is indeed God's doing. And no other. It is not because man deserved it, but because God chose in himself, in his love and grace and mercy, to follow this course of action. Look at verses 10 and 11 of our passage this morning. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, out of the sacrifice, Jesus will see that there is, there is good to come. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, because he shall bear their iniquities. God's purpose was that Jesus would die, but Jesus willingly, gladly gave his life there on the cross Willingly and gladly did that because he knew that through his death and through his resurrection that he would, bring, he would make many righteous. The one dying for the many. Verse 6 begins with, the, with, the, with, the, uh, with that term, we all. But it ends with the same Hebrew word, us all. We all were under the guilt and condemnation for our sin, but now we are all under the grace that covers that guilt and sin through faith in Jesus. Hallelujah! what a saviour. You know, these verses, folks, are actually a confession. They're actually written as a confession of the people of God realising they come to that realisation that it is indeed God who has, has dealt with their sin once and for all through his suffering servant. It's a confession on their behalf and it's a confession that, should be, that we should make on our own behalf because it's a, a confession that is needed to experience the forgiveness and the restoration from God. And so we have to ask this morning, is it a confession that you yourself have made? Can you add your voice to the voices of those who say, surely he has borne my griefs. Surely he has carried my sorrows. He was pierced for my transgressions and crushed for my iniquities. And the chastisement that was upon him has secured my peace with God. And that by his wounds, I am healed. Is that your confession today? I trust it is. Because if it is, then today surely is a good Friday. And every day then is a blessed day because we have been reconciled to God that we are now recipients of all of his abundant blessings in Christ, his chosen and treasured possession, and that we no longer have to fear him. We no longer have to be in shame before God and guilty before him because we can come and confess our sins and know that God has completely dealt with them. They're all gone. They're all done with. Are you struggling with, with, with that today? Are you, you are someone who is struggling with your sin, that, that they overwhelm you, they burden you down, you struggle with the shame and the guilt of that sin in your life? You think of yourself, you know, how on earth could, a, could God love me? Well, folks, there's the evidence that God loves us. Amen? Why did Jesus die? He died for you and he died for me. Hallelujah. What a saviour.
We're going to gather now around the communion table. I'm going to ask the uh, stewards if they'd like to come forward. Jesus, knowing that, what knowing what awaited him, on the night before he was arrested and betrayed, and then before he was to stand trial and was to undergo that horrific death, Jesus gathered his disciples together, and he says, "I have, I have been eager to share this final meal with you." And they gathered round the table, and it was the, the, the Jewish Passover meal. And, of course, the Jewish Passover meal was all about recognising that, that, uh, that God had, in history past, actually rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, and that it took God's mighty hand to do that, that there was no way that they could have rescued themselves. God had to act on their behalf. And, and the Passover pointed to the fact that God indeed had to, do, had to rescue the people, but that he did that and he rescued them out of slavery. This table this morning you know, points to Jesus who was the absolute fulfilment of that Passover meal. Not that we were rescued from slavery to a, from human bondage, but we've been rescued from slavery to sin and death. And so Jesus says to his disciples, as he passes out the bread, he says, Take this and eat this in remembrance of me. This is my body given for you. And then he took the cup and he says, This is the new covenant in my blood. This blood, my blood, which will be poured out for you, is, is a new agreement between, between God and, and you, my children. That, that, that God will no longer look upon your sin and punish you for that, but instead he'll look upon me who died in your place and my sacrifice. And so we ourselves this morning get to partake in this meal with Jesus and Jesus himself reminds us afresh in these elements this morning that it is him who has died for us. The bread of life. It is he who shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And so I invite you this morning to partake of these elements. I want you to eat the bread this morning. And as you eat of that bread, thank Jesus for the fact that he would come in order to die for you. Personally, he would die for you. And that as you partake of that bread, that you... you Symbolically, you take Jesus into you and you say, Lord, there is only in you that life is found, that eternal life is found, and I, I want to partake of you. I want to partake of that life with you. And then we're going to drink of the cup. We're going to do that together, though, so I'll ask you to hold the cup. The, the, we're going to drink of the cup, that cup which speaks of the blood poured out for us, the forgiveness of sins. And I want you, as we, as we drink of that cup, to think afresh this morning of the fact that, that there was nothing. Jesus held nothing back in order to save us. He gave his very life for us. And that, that our response should be that there should be nothing that should hold us back from Jesus and giving our whole life to him, should there? Nothing whatsoever. So let's pray.
And then I invite all of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus as your saviour to partake of these elements this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you this morning for this special reminder of the death and resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was him who came in order to die for our sins, to reconcile us to yourself. And that it is a pure act of your love and grace but, and nothing that we deserved, Lord. And as we partake of these elements this morning, help us afresh to, to confess our sins before you. Lord, to receive your forgiveness and then commit to walking in, those, in that righteousness that you have, have made possible for us in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that, that we might just be overwhelmed by your love afresh this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.